21st Century Radio is sponsored by Hieronymus and Company. Now more of 21st Century Radio with your host, Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Hi, this is Raymond Eric of the Doors, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. This is the alleged Dr. Bob Ronimus, a lowly PhD, hanging out someplace in this universe, and sometimes we can identify it even. And our executive producer, research assistant, Laura Corden, our engineer, is Jake Bryant. Yes, it is true. Janie Hendricks will be joining us again on July the 26th. Ziggy Marley will be spending an hour with us on August the 16th. And our guest... This portion is Stan Goldstein, Woodstock's second employee with almost as many titles as he has. Stories to tell, and I wish we had more time with him. He was the campground coordinator and overall go-to guy. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio, Stan. Stan, you were just about ready to tell us uh, how you uh, changed the little red rag and put a um, uh, an Oscar on it. Um, yes, well... Um... When this, when the event, and I can't claim that I can't claim the credit for what happened at the uh, at the academy. Um, at a, there was a an event at a uh, at a hog farmer who lives in L.A.'s house um, earlier in the day, and um, and this and a and a box had arrived with several hundred uh, red rags that had. The, uh, the image that Paul Foster had created of the flying hog imprinted on it, and the hog was flying towards a representation of the Oscar statue. And so it was a, uh, um, a great surprise and a, a really pleasant surprise that that arrived in time for the screening because people came from all over the country, um, particularly from northern California and hog farmers from far and wide. So... Uh, so there were probably 200, 230, 240 people, hog farmers, that attended the, those screenings and the uh, panel um, discussions that uh, that followed. Well, the, the, hog, the hog farm also created the button, and, and uh, we're not going to have time to talk about that because we need to get to other important things. But, again, you recreated that same button as a party favor in 2007 at another that Academy one I, event. Yeah, that one I was responsible for. And uh, the, how important was that pin to Carly Simon? Oh, 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 um, different, different pin. Oh, different that was a different pin, but she still wanted that pin, and she wouldn't go on the, she wouldn't uh, go up. That's right. Yeah, she yeah, That was perform. a show that I did with, uh, I produced for Wavy, um, Hog Farm um, spokesperson um, and uh, an activist and uh, um, very involved in the Saving Foundation. We did a show to benefit homeless causes in New York, that had an extraordinary lineup of talent, and rather than simply have laminates, we uh, we gave um, different different people doing different functions um, pieces of jewelry to identify mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And in that case, we had a Paloma Picasso knockoff of uh, of her lightning bolt, her liquidy lightning bolt. And Carly uh, Carly refused to uh, perform until I found until I got one. We passed them all out. And, um, <laughs> 
she had to get someone else had to give hers up. There's up. Yeah. Now we got to focus on the hog, hog farm because, as you say, they were central to creating the spirit of Woodstock. Tell us about Hog Farm and these extraordinary individuals. Well, the hog farm was a was, and I should say is, is. because the mm-hmm. hog farm still exists, and there's going to be a uh, a reunion later this year. Um, the hog farm was founded in about 1966 or so by folks in Los Angeles who were um, mostly involved in the entertainment industry, but were also um, socially and politically conscious and aware. Um, and wanted to live communally. And um, one of the members of this group that hadn't yet formed and didn't have a name um, connected up with a guy who was going to India and who said that this, this fellow, Paul Foster, once again, and his friends could come live in his house for, and at his farm where he raised hogs, and they didn't have to pay rent. They could all come and live there um, provided they slopped the hogs the hogs and so this group of eight or ten or twelve people moved into this farm just outside of Los Angeles and um, began to do entertainments on the weekends um, they built a stage and Tiny Tim performed there they uh, um, had kite flying contests after sunset so it wasn't really whether you could fly a kite but how well you um, pretended you were flying a kite were awarded prizes and <laughs> And people were invited to come up and join the, and join in these parties and festivities. So it became, uh, you know, people would ask one another, what are you doing this weekend? And someone would say, well, I'm going up to the hog farm. Um, and what are you doing? Well, I'll go up to the hog farm with you. Well, finally, when the fellow came back from India and the hog farm, the, the folks who had been living there decided to go out on the road with on buses, on those psychedelic buses, um, the name stuck to the people so they traveled under the name of the hog farm and uh, have been and that's been the name of this group this ever expanding group that continues to be actively involved in political and social betterment causes um, nationally and internationally well there's a lot of people to admire when at Woodstock 1969 I got to tell you I have enormous admiration for those two individuals well the 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 husband and wife team as they are now but his name wasn't um wasn't wavy that's right it wasn't wavy he was was hugh romney his wife was bonnie jean romney Mm -hmm. um she's now johanna and he is known widely as wavy gravy now what was the name that uh chip monk because you have enormously enormous regard for this guy and for good reason is a For good, good reason. reason, absolutely. Tell um, us a little bit about the name and then who this guy Chip Monk was. Well, do you mind if I turn that around a little bit? Certainly. Um, as I was staffing the festivals, I was. it seems there were a couple of positions that it was very clear to me that there was only one choice. Um, I didn't have to go looking for the person. The, the person um, for that position was obvious. What had to happen was I had to arrange to make that for them to be willing to work with us and to be available to us. And it was a little bit of hard work lining up Chip. Chip was the most highly regarded, and for good reason, most highly regarded 
lighting director, stage manager um, in the in the industry, and not just the rock and roll entertainment industry, but the but the entertainment industry overall. Um, he worked with pop artists of all kinds. Everyone, Neil Diamond, um, Peter Paul and Mary. He had he had lit the Monterey Pop Festival. He had been responsible for lighting at the Newport Jazz Festivals, New York Folk, and the Newport Folk Festivals. So Chip was the quintessential um, lighting artist and stage manager, and I was determined to hire him. And finally, we we managed to get a meeting where Michael Lang and I went to talk to Chip at uh, John Morris's house down in the Greenwich Village. And uh, as we talked to Chip about the, about the event, about the event, and I kept providing with technical details, and Michael kept giving him overall perspective, until finally Chip said, what is it that you do? And I kind of gave him this hint that I had uh, kind of designed elements of it or sized elements of it, and that I was gathering the staff, and I was doing this, and I was doing this, and I was doing this other thing, and that I didn't really have a title. And he said, well, sounds to me like you're the Holy Ghost. Nobody <laughs> knows exactly what you do, but we know we can't get along without you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he was, I understand he was at Altamont and got his two front teeth knocked out. Oh, yeah. Good yes. Lord, and he still hung in there. What an extraordinary! Yeah, that was a, that was a very difficult difficult day. I was there as well. Oh, and you were. Whoa. Managed, yeah, I production managed the Maisel's film shoot there, mm-hmm. and uh, I was wondering. And, and why... got got another crazy credit. I on the Maisel's film, I get a uh, I get a solo credit right behind the uh, the producers and directors as a special help. Oh, <laughs> special help. Well, one of my friends um, is a mountain girl, um, of course, related oh, sure. to Jerry Garcia. And I was talking to her just the other day. And uh, then the last thing I want to ask you about, Ken Kesey's bus, because, you know, she was also connected to Ken Kesey for some Absolutely. while further. Um, that that made it to Woodstock, but, but Ken wasn't there. Uh, tell, <laughs> tell us what happened. Well, um... We had made we had made arrangements, um, really at the instigation of the hog farm, to uh, to invite the, uh, the the Merry Pranksters, the the group that Kesey was a part of, and the folks that surrounded Kesey, the stuff that's very well documented in uh, in, in Tom Wolfe's book about the the Merry Pranksters. And so we invited them to come to Woodstock and that we would pay for their the cost of transportation and so on and so forth. And uh, and and they agreed. So it was going to be, I, I don't remember what the exact numbers were, but it was going to be 18 or 20 people. Well, um, the, the bus set off just exactly as had been planned. However, um, when, it's, when the bus left Springfield, Oregon, and pulled and was pulled into Eugene to gas up um, before getting on the road. Kesey changed his mind and decided not not to come um, for for reasons that uh, I I don't know. We never we never discussed why he decided not to come. He simply decided not to come, and the bus proceeded without him. And Ken Babs and folks showed up, and they pitched right in, and it was Ken and the pranksters that really set up the. Uh, 
the free stage out in the campgrounds and did a bunch of other such stuff. Anyway, um, once word got out about what was going on, this was in a couple a couple of days before the show. Um, people, members of the pranksters, had been talking to Ken on the telephone that was in my tent in the campground, and Ken uh, Ken changed his mind and decided that he would like to come and asked if I'd buy him an airplane ticket, and uh, and I wasn't willing to do so. And so Ken didn't come to Woodstock. And when folks, reached, when the pranksters returned to Springfield, um, to the to Kesey's, um, they were returning to Kesey's farm with a bus, and he had put up a sign that said, "To keep going." <laughs> Uh, that's, what, that's what Mountain Girl was referring to. I understand now. Oh, gosh, Stan, I'm so sorry. We're out of time. But, well, I'm sorry, too. It's great talking. You know, we can, we can do this again, and we don't have to do it on the air. I, there's lots of things I'd like to ask you about. Well, certainly, I'd love to do that. If you have one moment more for just the teeniest bit of trivia? Yes. For you, yes. Exactly four years before Woodstock was the Beatles at Shea Stadium, 55,000 people on August 15, 1965. All reserved seat tickets were $55 and $575. Gives you an idea of the change in the business. Yeah, that certainly does. Okay. Okay, well, thank you for joining us, Stan Goldstein, Woodstock's second employee with... Many titles, uh, and but he was the man. I call him the man anyways. And when we return, when Woodstock was on the precipice of being canceled, Elliot Tiber stepped in and saved the day. He'll be with us to tell the story that Oscar-winning director Ange Lee has failed, excuse me, filmed on his book, Taking Woodstock. That's going to be released August the 14th, 2009. Thank you very much for joining us, Stan. American history has been characterized by single moments that have defined movements. Now, with only 10% of blind children learning Braille in school, the time for a new defining moment is upon us. Join the NFB for a very special moment in the Braille literacy movement as we launch the 2009 Lewis Braille Bicentennial Silver Dollar Funds from the sale of the coin. Go to the National Federation of the Blind to develop and implement effective programs to increase Braille literacy among blind children and adults. For more information, visit www.braille.org. www.braille.org. No matter who we are or what we do, our health is a priority. To stay well or to recover from an illness or injury, consider using options that are safe, natural, and in some cases thousands of years old. From acupuncture to modern-day massage, counseling, and homeopathic medicine, the Ruscombe Mansions Community Health Center offers children and adults numerous health care and support services. Find out more about the Ruscombe Mansions yoga classes and weekend programs. Call 410-367-7300. That's 367-7300. Hello there, this is George Martin, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. And I'm quite certain that there are many other places in the universe 
with greater intelligence than us, and of course they may be completely different life forms. I think it would be arrogance to think we're the only people that God created. Did it order everything just when it comes to you? Closed. Anyway, you're closed. Okay. Maybe there'll be a few more people here by then. I don't like a little puny gathering like this. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. I'm the alleged Dr. Bob Hieronymus. And, of course, I've been waiting for this uh, segment for a long time. After reading this book a couple of months ago, the book is by Elliot Tiber and Tom Monty. It's called Taking Woodstock. Now, before there was a Woodstock concert, there was Elliot Tiber working to make a go of his parents' upstate New York motel. The Jewish clientele who had frequented the Catskills had discovered Florida, and the upstate tourist business was dying. To save his family's livelihood, Elliot put on plays and local festivals, and in the process, he became the area's issuer of event permits. He even used his own income from work as a Manhattan interior designer to support the family business. When Walkill decided that Woodstock was not going to take place in their neighborhood, it was Elliot Tiber who saved the day by introducing the producers of the event to Max Jasger. Thus, he not only saved Woodstock 1969, but the money he and his family earned as employees of Woodstock Ventures saved their upstate New York motel. Taking Woodstock is co-authored by Elliot Tiber and Tom Monte, and with us is Elliot, who has written and produced numerous award-winning plays and musical comedies for the theater, television, and films. As a professor of comedy, writing, and performance, he has taught at the New School University and Hunter College in New York City. His first novel, Ruhalt, was an instant bestseller in Europe and was published in the United States under the title High Street. Welcome to 21st Century Radio, Elliot. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Well, Elliot, I always wondered, I always felt that there was something about Woodstock that I didn't quite know and put together. And I'm so happy that I read your book a couple of months ago and found out exactly the missing <laughs> the missing part of it, which is a considerably missing part here. Uh, tell, tell us what events led you to becoming the man who saved Woodstock from can- cancellation back in 69. Well, as you mentioned, uh, Woodstock Ventures uh, was canceled out of Wallkill, New York, which was about 25 miles south of me. And uh, they had spent their uh, money and uh, infrastructure, and the town decided when they had heard rumors that about 10,000 tickets were sold, and they didn't want their charming little village overrun by hippies and drug addicts and homosexuals and dirty lesbians. Why they were dirty lesbians, I don't know. But they published a big picture in their paper showing a local farmer with a shotgun killing that little wonderful Woodstock bird that's on that famous poster. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had uh, my, uh, I was at the motel and I had a theater group and in our barn and uh, music festivals for nine years that nobody came to except one person, I'll tell you later. And... So I called uh, the Woodstock uh, people, and I said, I have a permit for a music festival, and that was the key. And they said, uh, where are you? And I said, White Lake, and they looked at a map. We don't find it. And I said, well, unless it was printed by the Chamber of Commerce, which I'm the president of, you wouldn't find it. We just are non-existent. And uh, so he said, make a cross on your lawn with white sheets. I told him we had a hotel and make a uh, 
cross on the lawn. Had a religious Jewish mama, and so she saw the cross and went into uh, hysterics. So she thought that uh, I was desecrating her Jewish lawn. And uh, he came by helicopter, or they came by helicopter, followed by some cars. And they landed there in this little village that never had any airplanes or anything, let alone a helicopter live. Uh, out came Mike Lang in uh, without a shirt and wild hair and no shoes. And my mother shrieked. She thought it was Jesus. <laughs> and he said, where's the permit? So I took out the permit and I showed it, which I signed personally because I was president of the Chamber of Commerce. And uh, by the way, in order to have a Chamber of Commerce, you need commerce. We didn't have any of that, but we had the Chamber. So I showed him, he said, what do you want for it? And people had been holding them up for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I said, well, I paid a dollar for it, one dollar, if you rent the rooms in my broken-down motel and uh, hire my 33 actors who are out of work, uh, then I'll, I'll give it to you for one dollar. So he wrote it, took out a check, and my mother said, no checks, cash only. <laughs> and she grabbed that dollar bill and put it in her bra where she put all the money, oh, whatever money there was. And then he said, okay, let's see your land. I said, I had 15 acres. And, well, it was mostly swamp land. Well, not really swamp. It was sort of the outhouses were overflowing. And it was totally unusable. So they were about to leave. And I said, wait a minute. Remember, one person came to my my music festivals that I had for nine years that only one person came every some, every week. That was my milkman, Max Jasker. Mm -hmm. And he paid his dollar for the ticket, and he brought milk and eggs and cheese for the actors because, really, we had nothing. And the bank was about to take over the place. And um, so um, they said they couldn't use the swamp. And I said, well, let me call Max because he has a 1,000 acres just up the road, nothing but a bunch of cows. So I called Max, and he laughed. He said, sure, Elliot, you could have your festival here. He thought there'd be 10 or 12 people. And we went to see the farm, and they saw that beautiful amphitheater and a 1,000 acres. It was beautiful. And they said to Max, uh, it's okay with you we have the festival here? And he said, sure. He said, but uh, you'll have to clean up afterwards. Oh, Mike Lang, as I always said, cool, man, groovy, cool. And he smiled. And he said, how much you want? And he said, well, he thought, well, $55 for the three days, would that be okay? And uh, cash. So Mike took out $55 cash and gave it to him. And we went to a restaurant to, to seal the deal, and the waitress's um, husband was the DJ there on the radio. And uh, while we were sitting there, we heard on the radio, oh, Elliot Tiber and Max Jasker are sitting here with uh, Woodstock people, and they're going to overflow the town of Bethel, our sweet little innocent town, with 25,000 hippies. That's how many tickets were sold. Well, from 10,000, it went up to 25 in a second. So Max said, listen, it's going to at least uh, cost you a couple of thousand dollars now. So he took out a couple of thousand dollars and gave it to him. And that's how I was the man that saved Woodstock and brought it to uh, the town of Bethel. Uh, the, Elliot, this book is hilarious. I, Thank you. I, <laughs> I never stopped laughing. Uh, you know, I, I had to, I had to, if you don't mind, I had to laugh at your mom, you know. And, and the, the your experience with your dad, especially near the end, was so moving. I mean, I hope that this film that's coming out on August the 14th, maybe you could join us again to especially talk about that film later. 
But uh, it's August twenty eighth, by the way. Oh, it's August twenty eighth. The twenty eighth, yeah, for okay. Labor Day weekend when people come back from the, you know the country and all of that, so there'll be an audience. Is that Ang Lee? Is that how you pronounce that? Ang, Ang Lee. Yes. Ang Lee. Uh, the, this, this film is based on your book. Um, uh, when did that begin? When did they start uh, putting that together? Uh, <laughs> when did what begin? The filming the, itself? I, yeah. When did they come to you and say, "Hey, we got to do this"? Oh, well, they didn't come to me. Uh, I had an agent and a lawyer, and they, of course, don't do anything, as you may know. <laughs> and uh, I, the hardcover came out August 07, and I went with the uh, book to San Francisco and Los Angeles to do some bookstores and a TV show. And uh, against my publisher's wishes, because he said it doesn't pay, no one goes to bookstores anymore, they all go to Amazon.com, and... <laughs> <laughs> so you have to pay for it yourself. So I did. I lay out to my. I said, "Well, if I make, uh, if I, something comes from it, so you'll reimburse the four thousand." So oh, sure, sure. Thinking nothing will happen. So I went to the TV station five thirty in the morning. Why I don't know. It's that hour, and they said, "Well, there's another guest. So wait in the green room." And in comes Ang Lee, and I went over. I was so overwhelmed. The man is such a genius. You know, he won the Oscar for Brokeback Mountain, and uh, for Eat, Drink, and Be Merry, etc. A brilliant. Uh, Genius, and I told him how wonderful his films were, and I'm such a big fan, and uh, all of that. And he said, "And what are you doing?" He thanked me and gave me a hug. I was hoping he was gay because I love genius, not muscle boys. And uh, well, both would be nice. <laughs> Oops, That's maybe all in right. Baltimore they don't like this. Oh, uh, look, look. Uh, you're on a, a show that. Uh, uh, doesn't have problems with that at all. Uh, <laughs> you have John Waters there, so well, indeed, goes, right? yeah, well, kind of. But you, you know, the thing is, is uh, since the early '60s, I've been an artist, uh, so uh, I used to let my freak flag fly, and my beard would fly along with it. And many of my closest friends during Woodstock era were homosexual, bisexual, asexual, heterosexual. As long as I was in the company of these these creative souls, I really felt safe. Uh, what do you think it is about? Uh, we'll get back to Woodstock in a second, but I'll tell you what. We're going to take a break, but you give this some thought, because I'm sure you've never thought about this before, right? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> It is about the gay community that has produced so many artists making revolutionary and creative contributions in every important field, including business and science. You give that some thought, and we'll be right back with our guest, Elliot Tiber. The book is Taking Woodstock, a true story of a riot, a concert, and a life with Tom Monte, Square One Publishers. Elliot Tiber, spelled T-I-B-E-R dot com. Elliot Tiber dot com, Taking Woodstock. TheMovie.com That's the sellingwell.com, named after one of our greatest symbols of prosperity, the well. Visit the sellingwell.com or call the Sellingwell's managing partner, Plato Hieronymus, at 443-939-1890. The sellingwell.com. Hey. 
Welcome back to 21st Century Radio, and we're going to give away the prize at this time. Yes, how would you like to win a free 21st Century Radio library of books and magazines and other interesting stuff, including... Taking Woodstock, a true story of a riot, a concert, and a life by Elliot Tiber with Tom Monty, published by Square One Publishers, squareonepublishers.com, or call 516-535-2010. If you can answer this question, you might be able to take home that entire library. The question is, what was the name of our final guest on 21st Century Radio last week. Tell us the name of our final guest on 21st Century Radio last week, and if you're first and correct, you'll be our winner. But you got to qualify. Here's how to do it. If you know the answer to this hour's quiz question on 21st Century Radio and you have not won from us in the last 60 days, call in now. 410-922-6680. That's 410-WCVM680. First with the right answer wins. Prizes are available for you to pick up at the WCBM studios in Pikesville after Friday of this week. Winners have 60 days to pick up the prizes and must wait 60 days before winning another prize from 21st Century Radio. Good luck. This is Carolyn Garcia, also known as Mountain Girl, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. This is one thing that I was going to wait a while before we talked about. Maybe we'll talk about it now so you can think about it. It's a free concert from now on. That doesn't mean that anything goes. What that means is we're going to put the music up here for free. What it means is that the people who put backing this thing, who put up the money for it, are going to take a bit of a bath. A big bath. That's no hype, that's truth. They're going to get hurt. But what it means is that these people have it in their heads that your welfare is a hell of a lot more important and the music is than a dollar. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio with our guest Elliot Tiber, co-author of Taking Woodstock, A True Story of a Riot, Concert, and a Life with Tom Monte, Square One Publishers, ElliotTiber.com, TakingWoodstockTheMovie.com. And it's uh, going to be released August the 28th, 2009. Just in time for you-know-what. Okay, Elliot, have you given that question? Here's the question. For $30,000, and if you get the correct answer on this, uh, we'll send it to you in in, uh, Confederate money. What do you think it is about the gay community that has produced so many artists making revolutionary and creative contributions in every important field, including business and science? Well, uh, I can't speak for everybody, but the majority of people that I know... Uh, we didn't have family. We didn't have uh, other events to occupy our time. So we were busy studying and designing and drawing and painting and sculpting and uh, as a way for uh, self-fulfillment. And um, in my case, that was exactly it. I started out painting and drawing and then uh, creating uh, sculptures and different things and then writing, and it was the fulfillment of it. Before I got a Yorkie, now I have a Yorkie. Well, that makes all the difference in the world. Yes, it does. And uh, so that may be uh, one of the uh, uh, underlying factors why the gay community is so involved. I know for years uh, people would say when I was an interior designer, uh, the straight husbands, well, the straight wives too, the husbands, uh, the wives would only want a gay interior designer 
or decorator because they had taste in class and the husbands had none. They were busy <laughs> making the money and the wives knew how to spend it. Yeah. And so but if you weren't gay or a gay hairdresser uh, then or a dress designer, they didn't feel like you had the ability or talent there was something wrong with you. Uh, of course, it's not 100% uh, the fact that there are straight hairdressers, I'm sure. I, I heard of one once years ago. Um, but they took him away to Bellevue, which is our insane asylum here in New York. Well, <laughs> sorry. All right. Yeah. Now, we are actually finally getting, you know, Baltimore has uh, changed a lot over the years, but we're finally getting, uh, catching up to the rest of the country. We're only about 22 years behind. And uh, so, therefore, now we're getting some editorials on the Stonewall Rebellion. Uh, would you mind talking about this a little bit with us, please? Well, about the same time, uh, to get just before I uh, got involved with Woodstock, uh, to get a relief from the terrible uh, mountains, the Borscht Belt, uh, the boredom of the people that went there, uh, I would go into the back into the city, a two-hour drive, and go to a bar. And there were only two bars in the village, Greenwich Village at the time. One was Lenny's Hideaway, which was an old speakeasy, and the other was the Stonewall. So that night I went to the Stonewall, and as usual, the police and tied in with the mafia because gay owners were not allowed to have bars. So it was the mafia, and then they had gay people running it, uh, would come there uh, for the money. And they would also beat up uh, gays and lesbians outside the uh, bars or in the streets uh, for fun or whatever reason. Uh, a lot of reasons to have gay hate crimes are just uh, full of, um, well, hate and uh anybody who's different and um so that particular night uh they uh were at the door and uh they came in the police came in got the money and then they uh waited outside for people to leave one or two at a time and then would beat you up uh take your money too and beat you up and that night uh Someone in the bar said, um, let's lock the doors, okay? So we, that was never done. We locked the doors. And then uh, uh, someone hollered, gay power. Well, that didn't exist. We didn't know what that meant. We all said, huh? And then I saw the police car out front, and I saw so I hollering out, let's overturn the damn police car. And so we opened the doors, and we went out and overturned the police car. Well, they were, like, dumbfounded and shocked. And we started to holler, we want the mayor, Lindsay, to come over there and to let's stop all of this business of uh, beating us all up. And uh, we went back in the bar and locked the doors and waited for the mayor to come. Soon enough, there was a big crowd outside of people cheering and booing. And, you know, this was Greenwich Village, and um, hundreds were there, and then I guess later thousands. I only stayed about two hours, and I had to get back up to clean the toilets at the Almonica Motel and make the beds and stuff like that. So, but that was the start of it, and that was my role in it, and that led to the led to the first gay pride parade. So that forty years ago is the same time as the anniversary of Woodstock, and mm -hmm. so it's um, uh, curious that it was all coming at the same time. Yes, in indeed. Well, you know, uh, I think it really changed the uh, led to the beginning. By the way, was it a thousand dollars a month or a two thousand dollars a month the police were paid to? To, uh, to to let the bar go on and to and to beat you up at the same time. We in the in uh, the Stonewall. Yeah. Oh, I don't know how much they just came in and they gave them wads of cash and uh, I don't know how much money it was. It was a lot. It was every 
Every few days, the police would show up at all of the, at the two bars. There were oh. only two bars then. Jeez, and it's the uh, year later is when more bars started to open up, when uh, freedom began to happen. Well, another highlight of your book, to me, is the rekindling and deepening of your relationship between yourself and your dad through the Woodstock experience. Now, this was both funny and sad at the same time. That's why this is one of the really one of those great books. Friends, if if you don't have any books on Woodstock, certainly you can. There, there, we've covered a number of them that have great photographs. But this story is, in my opinion, the reason why or how Woodstock could come to be. Uh, but there, this relationship with your dad, especially near the end, was just uh, was so heartwarming. Please tell us a little bit about what brought you two together. Well, he was always, uh, he worked very hard. Uh, he had a roofing uh, business in the city before they sold it, and, and we built this uh, place, this dreadful place. We had wet dreams of becoming very rich with the hotel and the Catskills, and we did uh, not business people because everybody, the plane started happening, and people were going to Florida and Puerto Rico and and uh, to Europe, and so they stopped going there. Um uh, but he was always uh, henpecked by my mother, and uh, she was a strong uh, survivor of uh, Russia uh, in the First World War, and he came from Austria in the First World War, too. And uh, so they struggled all their lives. And uh, But my father was henpecked, and uh, mother was strictly the boss. She wore combat boots, so to speak, and uh, ran right over him all the time, and they always fought and screamed. And so he was always sad and depressed. And then when uh, people started, the thousands started to arrive for Woodstock, uh, suddenly he was out there directing traffic and full of life and pep and energy and was making friends. uh, uh, All the people were giving him flowers. And it was just, he was having a, I never saw him smile before. And so he really was having a terrific time. And then, and he was very sick, and I didn't know how sick. And then it was for my mother's cooking. That's what killed him, her Russian, terrible Russian food. And um, uh, anyway, so uh, he was just feeling terrific and all of that. And he gave me a hug, the first time I ever had a hug from him. And uh, he said uh, that I made him feel alive and full of uh, uh, just joy. And he's never experienced that before. And um, I even asked him, I said, uh, why would you stay with that woman, my mother, all of these years? And he said something that shocked me. He said, I love her. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't know to make of that. I mean, she was just unlovable as far as I was concerned. But he, in fact, loved her. And that's why he stayed with her all of those years. Well, the you left out some wonderful experiences when... <laughs> I'd laugh at every time I think about in defending the fort, so to speak, there with you and your dad and uh, some other wonderful people. I gosh, I can't remember her name now. The big one that that came in every now and then when uh, and helped you out from getting knocked out a couple of times. Vilma. Yes, yes. Oh, Vilma was of Vietnam. This was the time of Vietnam, which was on the front pages of the Man in the Moon, and uh, I wouldn't believe that there was. I mean, I mean, the the, the uh, that thing on the moon. Uh, no one believed that that really happened, except in the TV series, because there was a camera to film the whole thing. So we really, that was the thought then. But Vietnam and all of that uh, terrible uh, period of, uh, of war, and 
I forgot the question. Well, basically... Uh, the oh, Vilma, Vilma. Vilma, yeah. So Vilma was a Vietnam vet and who was the uh, uh, ex-lover of an ex-lover of mine from Manhattan who stopped by accidentally and to see if he could help, and then he, he tumbled into this uh, hundreds of thousands of people, and he says he saw what was going on with the locals who were thugs and Nazis, yeah. and they were um, making hell, just putting swastikas on the walls, and, yeah. and uh, faggot go home, and that kind of terrible stuff. And he said, you need help, and at which point he showed, uh, he was wearing a dress and high heels and a blonde wig, and he showed us, <laughs> he showed me, I said, what kind of help? And he showed me he had a uh, gun strapped to his thigh. So that was Vilma, who in, in, became instant security for me, you know? Yeah. And uh, my dad became very close with him, and uh, uh, two buddies, so to speak, which was really unusual. Yeah, well, you had to, you had to... You were attacked a number of times. Uh, with some of the things that you were brought out about the locals in regards to their beliefs, uh, uh, I should have known. I should have known myself, but I just did not realize it was that bad. Well, we got there in around 58, I guess it was, and there was a sign chained across the road that said, No dogs, no Jews. And I thought it was a joke, a bad taste joke, but a joke. Uh, and I tore it down, but it went up again over and over and over, the uh, the thug uh, Children of the, um, there were a lot of German immigrants came after the war there, and that's why I called them Nazis. Mm-hmm. I mean, they weren't wearing Gestapo outfits, uh, but the swastikas and the faggots and the uh, kikes and all of that stuff uh, was very clear to me how they felt. They really, what they did is, they were the people who serviced the uh, 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 Jewish tourists that came, and they resented the fact that they were cleaning and cooking and, and uh, delivering stuff when, in fact, uh, everybody else was vacationing. So that's where that hate was, I believe. Yeah. Well, uh, is the film going to portray any of that? Um, The film is a beautiful film. It's a lot of fun. There's nobody um, gets killed. There's no car crashes. That in itself should win an Oscar (laughs) these days. (laughs) It's impossible to do that. Uh, The film follows the book uh, pretty closely, and uh, it's... Uh, of course, it can, it's not a documentary, and it can't portray everything in the book, but it would be a 20-hour movie. So Ang chose uh, uh, to make it a film. It's a very personal journey of a young man who has some dreams of uh, something wonderful happening in his life, a festival, and the dream comes true, and that's what the uh, the movie's about. It's uh, not about... Uh, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, the concerts, that was all done wonderfully in that documentary in 1970 that everybody knows. Uh, this film is really a, a personal journey of one person. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and actually it was a personal journey for one person, but i got to tell you, a lot of us who, who've read it feel like they were part of it. The, the writing was really just excellent. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, w- w- now... Tell us what it was like to be um, a guest of honor at the recent Biographa Film Festival in Bologna, Italy. Uh, By the way, is your book available in Italian? Yes, it's in Italy. It's in 12 languages already. 12 languages. Hot dog. Yes, it's getting more and more. (laughs) I just got back from Bologna, Italy, which is, uh, if you've been there, besides the food is wonderful, the people, it's a leftist city. And there are signs all over, and I said, what is all that graffiti everywhere? And it's, uh, well, I can't say it on radio, I guess. It's uh, very anti-pope and anti-corrupt government. 
It's a leftist city, and it's a huge gay and lesbian population, which I was really surprised at because of the Pope, the Pope this, the Pope that. Well, they don't like the Pope. They didn't like the Popes from five centuries ago, and they don't like the ones today. So it was my kind of tariff. I had to move again. I've lived in 20 countries already. Uh, I probably would go to Bologna, Italy. Well, you you lived in, in Europe for a while, didn't you? Well, yeah. Um, after uh, Woodstock in uh, 1970, I moved uh, back. I sold the Almonico. My dad passed away. I sold the Almonico. I moved back to the village to be near the newly opened gay leather, uh, S&M leather uh, clubs and all of that. Am I allowed to say S&M on your station? Yes, you can, sir. Okay, the, the S&M leather clubs, of which I was very active. And uh, I met this uh, guy at 3 in the morning in the street uh, with a French accent, and we fell in love, and uh, within two months I just sold everything. He was from Belgium, a director, and studying in America, and... I just uh, moved over to Belgium. I'm Aries, so I just pick up and go. And we lived together 27 years. He died in 1999, unfortunately, uh, from hepatitis. So, But uh, 27 years, we worked together. We uh, uh, wrote, he directed, we did films, books, plays, television. It just was uh, uh, another uh, wonderful uh, period of my uh, time. And people say, oh, you're so lucky. No, I made my own luck. Sure I came did. here, I didn't speak a word of French, and I found a way to survive, and I got my own TV through humor, using New York Jewish humor. They thought it was French humor. I didn't tell them it wasn't. <laughs> That's what the papers said. That's they what? said, oh, it's wonderful how this New York gay Jew, imagine, <laughs> uh, could have his finger on the French humor. I didn't want to tell them it was based on Leo Rossin's Joys of Yiddish, mm-hmm. which was Yiddish humor. Yeah. Oh, gosh, but another really important aspect of this book, and something that I learned, and I I really want to share with our listeners before we say goodbye, and that is, Mike Lang asked you to go on NBC Radio and tell the country to come to the festival now and to let them know what was going down. Now, this might be one of the most important parts of the Woodstock story that I had never heard before. You did what Mike said, and it worked out. What was going down that had to be broadcasted that very night? Well, the local uh, the local uh, thugs who had been uh, demanding money more, and they got paid off, but it wasn't enough. They wanted more and more as the figure got up to 100,000 and 200,000 tickets sold. They kept demanding more. And Mike said this was a Tuesday morning, uh, Tuesday afternoon, and he said, well, you go on the radio in one of the rooms that the radios rented from us, and tell them, uh, I said, I've never been on radio before. And he said, just tell them who you are and what's happening. So I went on and I told them who I was. And I said that uh, if you want three days of piece of music, please come now. Don't wait until Friday because the local Nazis, and I use that word, and there was no three-second delay in those days. And um, uh, come on out now. And by the way, you mentioned before free ticket, free concert. You should play that part. Yes, well, I said... If you don't have tickets, it doesn't matter. It's all free. Big <laughs> mistake. Mike Lang almost had apoplexy. Oh, I didn't know that Warner Brothers had already bought the rights for the movie, and they were, you know, had the money to do it. But that's why, in fact, it was a free concert, and all the fences were broken down. And so the next morning, uh, about 3 in the morning, Wednesday, we hear noises outside, and my father and I got baseball bats to protect ourselves. We went out on a two-lane road. It was five lanes of white traffic lights, white car lights, heading our way with buses and kids on Volkswagen and music playing. 
And the festival started then and there, just amazing. Overnight, we had, you know, 100,000 people. The governor, Rockefeller, closed the New York Thruway, and he said traffic was backed up 95 miles. Nothing was moving. And my father said, look what you did, look what you did. Then he hugged me. My mother said, look what you did. <laughs> I'm sorry. I better control myself here. Well, yes, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> that, knock, that knocked me out when you said that. Friends, uh, this, again, this is an extraordinary work. Uh, I've read it three times. And it is funnier. Well, I, I, shouldn't, I apologize to you uh, for saying this, Elliot. But it was funnier each time. Well, thank you. Uh, and, well, I apologize. That's very nice. I'm a humorist. Well, That's what I live for. Yeah, well, people can purchase Taking Woodstock by going to Amazon.com or visiting the publisher's website at SquareOnePublishers.com. And you can call Square One directly at 516-535-2010. That's 516-535-2010. One, one, oh. Also in bookstores everywhere now, suddenly, overnight. Overnight. Barnes all and over Noble. the country, amazing. Well, no wonder. I mean, uh, I think word gets around after a person reads this kind of a book. Don't you think so? Well, so if they go to takingwoodstock.com, there's a little number in the upper right-hand part of the screen. There's over 4 million hits now. And that's amazing. all? Just 4 million? 4 million. million. <laughs> Just amazing. I, I, I mean, how many friends do I have? 50? No, about 50 million, I think, right about now, Elliot. Oh, it's just wonderful. It's like winning the lotto. Thank you for joining us, Elliot. Please hang on the line uh, for after the show. I'd like to talk with you. Elliot Tyver, Taking Woodstock, A True Story of a Riot, a Concert, and a Life with, with, with written with Tom Monty Square, One Publishers, ElliotTyver.com, Taking Woodstock, the movie.com.